Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Open up to Luke chapter 19, please. And let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. And after he said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount of, that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you there. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to him, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, Stones will cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The Holy Spirit, through the agency of the pen of the, the writer Luke, now records for every generation the events of the last week of Jesus' earthly life. So we've made it to this point. Uh, this is what, what you've often heard referred to as Passion Week or the Week of the Passion, right? And that's not because Jesus is, is passionate or he's, he's showing forth his strong emotions, um, but because this week is going to culminate in his suffering, okay? It's going to end with him on the tree. The suffering servant would undergo the suffering that would result in the forgiveness of sins, so you remember that we've been, we've been reading of Jesus' approach to Jerusalem. He's been working his way toward Jerusalem. Back in 1835, 18 verse 35, we learn that Jesus was approaching Jericho, which is about 12 miles up the road. And then in 19.1, he's entered into Jericho. And then in 19.11, he's near Jerusalem. Now in 19.28, we learn that he is, he's now going up to Jerusalem. Between Jericho and Bethany, which is only a few miles from Jerusalem, there is the the Mount of Olives. Uh, Bethany sits on the eastern side of the mount. And so Jesus is very close to Jerusalem. This is his final approach. Also, you need to know that this is is the uh, Sunday before his crucifixion. 
Uh, and so here's the timeline for the rest of the Gospel of Luke. It, it, the, the next week takes us right to the end of the chapter, or the, the book almost. Sunday, 1928 to 44 is the triumphal entry. Monday, 1945 to 48, Jesus cleanses the temple. Tuesday and Wednesday, 20 verse 1 through 22, 6, he's teaching and preaching in the temple. And then Thursday, 22, 7 through 71 is the Passover, it's the Lord's Supper, it's the betrayal in the garden, it's his arrest. And then Friday is chapter 23, that's the trial before Pilate and Herod, the condemnation, the crucifixion of Jesus. Saturday, no events are reported in the book of Luke. Uh, we have to turn to Matthew 27, 62 through 66 or something on that day. And then Sunday, chapter 24, 1 through 49 is the resurrection. And then 40 days later, we get a little snippet in the book of Luke 24, 50 through 53. And then on to Acts chapter 1 with his ascension. So this, this is the, the last part of the book of Luke, of the gospel. Now remember this also. The, um, the apostles and many of the Jewish followers of Jesus had bought into a false narrative about what was going to take place immediately. Luke 19.11, the text says this, they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Of course, the kingdom of God, like I've pointed out before, was in their midst. Jesus had made that clear to them. But they indeed thought that he would overthrow the political and physical forces of the Romans who were occupying Jerusalem. And that, he, that Jesus would return Israel to a former glory that they had lost. But, but you and I know that Jesus was not just conquering Jerusalem. Jesus was conquering the world. Jesus was conquering the world, not just Israel. And all authority had been given to him, not only in this world, but in heaven also. He had all authority in heaven and on earth. But nonetheless, it appears that these followers of Jesus have this misconception about what is about to happen. And... um, Think of this, should the paradigm in their minds have been a military skirmish, right? A fight and an inauguration of Jesus on the physical throne of Israel, the coming week was going to be sorely disappointing for them. Nothing was going to go according to what they thought would happen. And perhaps that explains the apostles dispersing when Jesus hangs from the tree. It did not yet make sense to them. Now, what happens here is what what has become known as the, the, the triumphal entry. It's a triumph of Jesus. He's, he's, it's a victory entrance. Now, first, notice that Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead of him into the village. He tells them exactly what is going to happen to them. They will enter the village, they will find a colt tied, and they, they are told to untie the colt, to bring it to Jesus. Jesus also tells them, if anybody asks them why you are doing this, they are to say, the Lord has need of it. 
And then verse 32 says, So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Everything plays out according to what Jesus had said. Of course, I mean, we could explain this and say that Jesus went ahead and did some reconnaissance beforehand, and he, knew, he had worked out the details, and he had spoken to these owners, but there's nothing in the text to indicate that. Rather, what we know of Jesus is his power and his knowledge, and Jesus, as the Son of God, had perfect knowledge. Perfect. He knew the intimate details of what was coming, not only would they find a colt, but the colt was one on which no one had yet sat. He knows that detail about that particular animal at that particular place at that time. And he knows what they're, he knows what they're going to be asked. And indeed, when, when he, they go into the city, they find it exactly like he said. And so he supplies them with the answer, and they give exactly the answer that he gave to them. And so we're reminded by this passage that Jesus Christ is not a mere man. He's not a mere man. He's the God-man. Ryle describes Jesus this way. He speaks like one whose eyes were in every place, like one who knew things unseen as well as things seen. And this is an eternal truth. God knows all things. God sees all things. That should fill us with both fear and and, and comfort. right? Fear in knowing that he is not ignorant of any of the sins of any of us or of any of our thoughts. He's not ignorant of any of them. And yet there's comfort in the fact that he knows all things and that he knows and sees our trials, our discomforts, our, he sees our good works. He sees those things done in faith. Nothing, nothing is outside of his eyesight. Now the two men <clears throat> sent by Jesus find that everything works out just as Jesus had told them it would. They untie the colt. The owners ask them what they are doing. They respond, the Lord has need of it. And the owners allow them to proceed. You know, and and again, there's speculation about this. Did they know the Lord? Well, perhaps. Perhaps they had seen the miracles. Perhaps they joined the procession after this. We don't have the details there. But nonetheless, it is supernaturally arranged. They go, they take the colt, they bring the colt back to Jesus. Now, what follows in this passage is recorded by all four of the Gospels. And that rarely happens. All four of the Gospels give us the triumphal entry. Since the mouth of Zechariah, the prophet, and before him, Isaiah, spoke these words, they waited to be fulfilled until this very moment. Right, Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is indeed, this fulfillment of prophecy is indeed what we're going to see time and time and time again in the, the coming week. It is densely packed with the fulfillment of the prophecy of the ages. And this is what we should expect from the fullness of time, isn't it? 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate in that place. And we know what Scripture says of him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, in Christ, they are yes. Right? So we're going to just see this slew of the fulfillment of prophecies in the coming days. But what of Zechariah's prophecy? If you go back and look at the context of that passage, take up the next verse. Right? Zechariah 9.10. Only way you'll find Zechariah is if you have the little tabs on the side of your Bible. (laughs) Zechariah 9.10 says, And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So, So that verse 9 Jesus coming in, it's talking about the king coming into Jerusalem. And then the next verse says, and he's proclaiming that he is the Lord of the nations, right? The passage goes on to speak of the reign of King Jesus over all the nations from sea to sea, from the river, the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. And so uh, Kyle, the the, uh, Hebrew scholar, summarizes this section of Zechariah this way. He says, Whilst the heathen world falls under the judgment of destruction and the remnant of the heathen are converted to the living God, the Lord will protect his house and cause the king to appear in Jerusalem who will spread out his kingdom of peace over all the earth. Prince of Peace. The king coming in to be seated upon the throne. The king coming in. And yet, it's not just Israel It's the whole world with Israel just as the throne. So in other words, this this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem is not ironic. It's not ironic. It's not like false humility. Right? Look at Zechariah. Jesus is humble in his demeanor, but he's coming in and proclaiming his rule over all the nations. Right? It, it, it is not Jesus diminishing himself. Right? He is proclaiming and fulfilling this word by the prophet that all the ends of the earth are his. Right? And let's, you know, let's get it out of our heads also that, that entering in on the colt of a donkey is somehow undignified. It was typical of the time. It was typical of the culture. Right? It, um, the uh, Ryle says it may be well to remark that there was nothing ignominious or unworthy of a great person riding on a donkey. In eastern countries, donkeys have in every age been used by persons of high rank. And then he, he references Judges 5.10, which falls in the middle of Deborah and Barak's song and lauds the riding of white donkeys. And right, we see, we see this happen other places. Uh, Kyle says, in the east, it is of a nobler breed and not so despised as it is with us. So he's saying, like, the donkeys are different. In the East, it's a much more noble breed than than what we've got in the West. But it is also a fact that in the East, he goes on and says, and more especially among the Israelites, it was only in the earlier times when they possessed no horses as yet that distinguished persons rode upon Donkeys, Judges 5.10, 10.4, 12.14, 2 Samuel 17.23, 19.27. 
And then he goes on from there and says, well, it was from the time of David on when they began to breed horses that it became more um, common to ride in on, on horses from the time of Solomon downwards. So, but the point is, it's not undignified for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. There is history compacted into what Jesus is doing here. But it is most certainly humble and unexpected, right? That, that This is, is not a surprise for us who have the New Testament laid out before us and who know the end of this week, right? The king of Israel is humble. The king of Israel empties himself. The king of Israel is, conquers by dying. Right? He, he's about to die in a most shameful way, but it is the way that God has appointed. And so again, all of this is, is, is that cleverly disguised victory. You know, it's disguised as defeat. And so the prophet Zechariah told us the meaning of Jesus' entry, the fulfillment of his prophecy, and what his, his humble entry signifies. It is a victory. It is a triumphant entry, and that's not ironic. That's not like false humility. It's not like, yeah, well, it's not really triumphant. I mean, he's on a... No, this is him proclaiming his victory. It is the establishment of a kingdom of peace which will extend over all the earth. Now, in in just thinking about that, dear brothers and sisters, do you long for the consummation of the kingdom of peace? You long for the consummation of it. We have the inauguration. But do do you long for the, the consummation of a kingdom of peace? Today, the nations are vainly raging and the rulers of the earth take their stand against the Lord's anointed. But God laughs at them. It is the laughter of a father who has everything worked out for his children. Right? It's the laughter of of a father who is about to tell his children that today they leave on a surprise vacation. Right? Have you ever done that to your kids? You don't tell them you're you're doing something spectacular and then you surprise them? They're like, whoa, this is amazing. And then for the next three hours they talk about it. In other words, the father works everything out. And, you know, and so th- that Psalm 2, God's laughter is the laughter of a father who's worked everything out. The nations vainly rage, but Jesus has come and he is, he's ridden in. He's proclaimed his triumph. He's died. He's risen again. He sits to the right hand of the father. Everything's worked out. So God laughs. It's the laughter of a father who loves his son and who loves his adopted children. Now, the, the procession of, of Jesus on the, the uh, colt of a donkey continues to have echoes of nobility and dignity. The people, right, spread their coats on the road and they place branches before him. They, they make a path for the Lord and they're laying, they're laying, so to speak, the red carpet out for him. They're honoring this entrance. They're marking it as distinctive. They're proclaiming that he has the right to come in and they're making the road before him. 
And then the people, the whole crowd of disciples, it says, began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Think back on all the glorious things that have happened in this area, in the land of Jerusalem, in the land of Israel. Think back. Casting out demons. Healing broken bodies. Causing the wind and the rain to stop with the word. Walking on the sea. Raising people from the dead. They've seen all these works. And so they properly give glory to God. And to, and to give voice for their awe of Jesus Christ, they shout a line from Psalm 118. A psalm that was used during the Passover. And undoubtedly one of the psalms, if you go back and read it, it's messianic. It's quoted all over the place in the New Testament about the, the messianic call of Jesus. And they're shouting this out. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And to that they add wonderful lines about peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so it's a glorious song of praise. They recognize they're shouting before all the nations that Jesus is blessed. Blessed. Others thought him to be cursed. Right? They acknowledge him king. Others thought him to be that nobody from Galilee. He's a king. He's the king of all the nations. He's not just the king of this one area. He's the king over all kings. He's the king of kings. And yet, many thought him to be cursed. They proclaimed that he came in the name of the Lord. Others said that what he did, he did for the glory of his father, the devil. And so this song of praise is appropriate to the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His Father in heaven is pleased to hear the people, those people whose mouths he created, singing the praise of his Son, these glorious words. And as if on cue, the Pharisees come along and interject a dissonant chord in this glorious song. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They object to what is said and believe that Jesus should not receive those praises. Right? And, and that they are not fitting for him. These are not fitting praises for Jesus. The Pharisees hate Jesus. They could have or, or did. They did witness all those miracles. And instead of it making them sing, it makes them angry. Instead of joining their voices with those who rejoice, they tried to shut the whole thing down. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They appealed to Jesus as teacher. Do you notice that? But they have proven time and time again that they will not be taught by him, that he is anything but their teacher. The Pharisees are not just killjoys. They are wicked haters of God. God stands in their midst. God performs miracles among them. God shares with them the words of life. God loves the loveless, and they object. And, and Jesus gives them an answer, one that is powerful. He says to them, if I tell you, if these 
become silent, stones will cry out. God has ordained praise from the mouths of Jesus' disciples that day. But if for some reason they had quit, quit praising, quit shouting, quit singing, God would have marked this occasion of Jesus' entry as the King of kings and the Lord of all the nations into Jerusalem by making stones scream and cry out. Making stones shout. You know, if the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind, will not shout his praises, the lower parts of the earth will do it as they've been assigned and commanded by God to do it. They will testify to God's glory, but in this case, they would be given voice to bring appropriate attention to Jesus as he enters as the King of Kings. But think about it this way. The stones didn't shout that day. Because beautifully and wonderfully, the voices of the people were raising up in praise of Jesus Christ. Stones did not have to cry out. Right, So it is that if we decide to be silent in this sanctuary this morning, whatever the motive, whether from embarrassment or anger or cold-heartedness or laziness, God could make the carpets shout and the trees outside clap their hands. He could make the wood of this pulpit rebuke you. In the presence of Jesus Christ, silence provoked by the rebukes of Pharisees. Listen to what I'm saying. In the presence of Jesus, silence provoked by the rebukes of Pharisees is inappropriate. In the presence of Jesus Christ, the one who has redeemed all sinners from their despicable sins, silence provoked by embarrassment would be terribly Thankless, wouldn't it? It'd be desperately inappropriate. Silence, silence, our silence would lead dead stones. Not those created in the image of God, not those made to worship God, but dead stones to show forth more life than the people of God. Silence will lead even the stones to cry out against us, to rebuke us for our silence. And while the Pharisees rebuked for praises, the stones would begin rebuking for the silence. Spurgeon, in a sermon on this passage, that's Charles Spurgeon, you've probably heard of him, speaks of the praises of creation and and looking, (laughs) looking at its exuberance, the praises of creation is, is over the top. Right? He can't help but exhort his church. And he says this, How do God's creatures serve him out of doors? The birds do not sit on a Sunday with folded wings, dolefully silent on the boughs of the trees. They sing as sweetly as may be even, through the rain, may be even though the raindrops fall. As for the newborn lambs in the field, they skip to his praise, though the season is damp and cold. Heaven and earth are lit up with gladness, and why not the hearts and houses of the saints? And then Spurgeon goes on and says, Saved from hell 
and be silent? Secure for heaven and ungrateful? Bought with precious blood and hold our tongues? Filled with the Spirit and not speak? Restrain from fear of feeble man with the Spirit's course within our souls? And he just says, God forbid. And here's another thing. There are many here who don't feel the joy that would allow them to be exuberant. And that is why you who do feel that joy are obligated to sing with exuberance. To sing with strong praise. Those of you who who feel the Spirit stirring, who, who feel this joy, must sing at the top of your lungs. The one seated next to you is going to be exhorted and encouraged right by it as they hear your voice breaking because you want to honor Jesus Christ with your voice. That love for your neighbor is one of the reasons we're exhorted by the Holy Spirit in Colossians 3.16 to admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There are times when my heart is heavy up here. I don't have joy. And I see somebody out there singing with faith. And I see somebody shoot their hands up because they want to honor God in their prayers. And you know what it does? It stings me and then it helps me. It stings me and then it helps me. So brothers and sisters, the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory, the astonishing, the the cosmic glory of Jesus Christ is the first reason you should shout joyfully and worship exuberantly. We do not want to hear the bricks cry out against us. But the other reason is to lift the hearts of those around you. They often need your loving admonishment. I often need your loving admonishment. So sing. We have one more song. You have an opportunity to sing praise to God. Right? So sing that last hymn with great faith because Jesus Christ is great. And he's a great Savior. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that that Jesus has just laid before us. That if we were to be silent, he would cause the stones to rebuke us, to cry out. Oh Lord, I pray that, that we would have the faith to rise up and to proclaim your greatness. Everywhere we go, whether in the sanctuary, whether at home, whether at the workplace, whether at the grocery store, whether in the fields as we work them, whatever it may be, Father, I pray that uh, the stones would not need to cry out because we would be supplying the praise that is, is due your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.